0: Hi Alison.
1: Hi Sarah. What a dramatic couple of weeks it's been since we last spoke. France has been hit by another terror attack and a very personal one this time. A history teacher Samuel Paty was beheaded last weekend on the 18th of October by a young Chechen man.
0: Yeah, and the murderer was angry over stuff that he had read on social media posted by the parent of one of Patti's students. Um, The parent was angry that the teacher had shown some of the Charlie Hebdo caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad in class. This was um, part of a lesson about freedom of speech.
1: Yeah, and all of this is coming in the wake of the trial over the 2015 Charlie Hebdo attacks.
0: Mm -hmm. And President Macron made an emotional tribute to Patti at an official ceremony last week. At the ceremony, they played out the song One Love by U2, which was uh, Bati's favorite song. Macron said that the teacher embodied the values of the Republic, something that France really does hold for its teachers. Um, He also insisted that there was no way France would stop supporting free speech and that caricaturing religion, all religions, was part of that.
1: Well, the murder came shortly after Macron made a speech denouncing religious separatism in France. And in fact, the government is preparing an anti separatism law.
0: So, yeah, so the idea of religion, the idea of Islam, and Islamism is in the air in France. Everyone, of course, is weighed in about this murder, all political parties from all spectrums. Um, the interior minister even went so far as to say he wanted halal and kosher products removed from supermarket shelves.
1: Yeah, that seems like quite an extreme measure. He
0: is, of course, a pretty extreme interior minister.
1: He, he is very much right of center, uh, given mm-hmm. that this is supposedly a centrist government. Mm-hmm. It's created a, you know, a, a lot of controversy and Turkey, among other countries, has called for a boycott of French products
0: of course not just because of that statement but just the general anti-islam feeling in france there is this inevitable backlash muslims in france and abroad are feeling under attack Um, but you could ask the question is all of this i mean besides the comment about these kosher and halal products but in general the measures and the discussion in france is it really anti-muslim Maybe, maybe not, right?
1: Well, the Prime Minister himself has insisted that the government is fighting an ideology, not a religion, and that it's clamping down on what it sees as a form of political Islam, which is aimed at undermining French society and its values from within.
0: So speaking of French values, I mean, traditionally, as we said, it's teachers who are tasked with passing them on to students. Teachers, of course, were completely shocked about this murder, as we were all. Um, And they're already under a lot of pressure with COVID.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of talk about them now being frontline workers.
0: They have a lot on their shoulders. Here's Rashid Zerouki, a teacher in Marseille.
2: La société évolue, les savoirs évoluent et... He
0: says here that society is evolving, and teachers are expected to give more and more to their students. He says, for example, during the lockdown, teachers had to guide their students in using digital tools. Now Samuel Paty's beheading brings up questions about Republican values, secularism, tolerance. It's a lot of responsibility. And there are never enough means. Zaruki is 28 years old, originally from Morocco. He's been teaching in a middle school his whole career in a special class called a SEGPA. This is for students who have failed to learn enough in elementary school to move forward in middle school. They're difficult kids. They have family problems, medical problems. He's actually trained as a primary school teacher, and so he has to get these kids up to speed. He teaches laïcité, or secularism, as per the program.
2: J'ai ma façon de sur la laïcité, mais, euh, he
0: says over the years, he's developed a way to teach laïcité. Sur, euh... So this is secularism
1: à la Française, which guarantees both the neutrality of the state in terms of uh, religion, but also guarantees freedom to practice your faith or not, uh, whichever uh, is the case, but in the private sphere.
0: Yeah. And as he says, that, that has been taken, you know, in and out of context, but he really sticks to the text, the actual code of conduct, which is actually posted in every school. The language in this text is legal, so he has the students work in groups to figure out what it really means and then they rewrite it so it's in a language they can explain to other kids.
2: Je trouve vraiment que alors que j'ai des élèves qui est vraiment sont difficiles à, à mettre en route, à mettre au travail. Là, c'est un sujet qui les intéresse parce
0: que un for un students who have a, qui a, a lot, lot of problems, this is something sujet, that really catches their attention c'est it's a subject that's all over the news and they already have preconceptions, a very negative view of laïcité.
2: Ils ont une vision négative de la laïcité. Ils ont une image d'une, d'une laïcité qui est contre la religion.
0: This is the view c'est that laïcité is against la religion, religion, he says, contre religion, contre he says. but it's not true. That's by some in the media, he prefers to focus on the text. Laïcité is one of the so-called republican values that French schools are expected to transmit to students.
1: And it falls especially on teachers of history and social studies, like in the case of Samuel Paty.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to hear about what these teachers thought of the situation, um, if they're now maybe changing how they're teaching after the murder. Um, I reached out to Julie van Reckham. Yeah, she's
1: been on the podcast before talking to us about how to teach the Holocaust.
0: Yeah, I do like to reach out to her for these tricky subjects. Um, She's a middle school history teacher in Paris. For several years before, she taught in a rough northern banlieue. Um, And and I'm interested in her perspective here because she is really, really dedicated to her students. Um, Maybe not exactly the typical French teacher, but she has put a lot of thought into these subjects. She told me that showing the caricatures is not specifically part of the curriculum, but she is tasked with providing students with media literacy. And she has shown the Charlie Hebdo caricatures to her students. We talked about that, but she started out first saying that she was not that surprised by the murder of her colleague, even if it was horrific.
2: After the 2015 attacks, um, ISIS said we are targeting teachers. And since then, I knew something could happen. So you were
0: kind of I mean, obviously, nobody can expect something exactly like this. But you were kind of expecting this in the sense that you'd heard the threats. Yes. So since then, had you as a teacher been changing or thinking about what you're teaching and how you're
2: teaching? Yes, absolutely. But not the content of what I teach. But the way I teach. That's to say when I talk about caricature, so cartoons and sometimes very offensive ones, I always try to show some cartoons that are offensive to me first. For example, a cartoon about how lazy teachers are. And I, I show my pupils how it's offensive to me and to the whole category of teachers. And I say Okay, I have to accept that people see my profession, the job I really like, they see it another way.
0: And so does that then lead up to, have you shown these these Mohammed cartoons to your students? Have you done that same lesson?
2: So I chose the cartoons that I really can explain. For example, the cartoon with Mohammed with a star on his ass, I'm not able to really explain the context, which is very, very complicated. Uh, I think it's about riots in Egypt. This is the cartoon that got blown out of proportion with, with this current situation. Yes, I think I believe it. I'm, I'm not sure uh, we were not in the same classrooms. So I, I absolutely have no idea what he said, what he explained. But the thing is, if I choose a cartoon, I try it to be not on too many levels of understanding. For example, in that cartoon, you have something which is related to nudity, pornography, erotism. So three words, very, very, very hard to explain and to give a nuance to teenage people.
0: (laughs) So you've shown caricatures, but you've chosen ones that might be offensive but easier to give context to
2: absolutely easier to give context and with only one or two level of understanding after 2015 attacks i did the same things as before the only thing i changed really is i thought anything can be done with what you say that's to say i'm like 50 55 minutes with my pupils in the classroom When they go outside of my classroom, they speak together, they can um, think about what I said and anything could be exaggerated or taken out of context. So I always keep like three, four minutes at the end of each class to say, are we clear about what we said? Do you still have questions? If there is something you want to tell me, I'm open to it. If there is something you're mad at me, Tell me now, I write it down and we'll talk about it the next time.
0: Do you see this as sort of a way to, to, to protect yourself on some level?
2: Yes, absolutely.
0: Have you had students, you know, get mad and say, you know, why are you showing these cartoons?
2: No, um, in fact, maybe it's uh, the, um, because I really choose very, very well. Uh, I, I, I really take time to choose the best cartoon I had some very funny experiences with nudity on some artworks, the the pupils coming at the end of the class and saying, you know, uh, the the lady was naked on the artwork. Do you know that? I, I always accept that kind of questions. And I always say, oh, it's a very good question. This is my way to tell the pupils, your questions are allowed. And if you go back home, and talk to your parents about what we saw and what we worked on, maybe they will have their own opinions they are entitled to, but maybe they won't have every answer about it. So if you want to talk about why is there nudity in that cartoon or something like that, maybe I can answer and I will take the time to, to address this. And there was a thing with a young lady about the Armenian uh, genocide. After the course about this, she she told me, Ma'am, I have a question, but I really, really, really don't want you to take it for you. I say yes ask me you can and she was so cautious in fact her question was my father and my brother told me that the genocide didn't happen i believe you when you say it happened we have sources etc but i don't know what to think about this and i said that's a very good question i asked her if i can have some questions about her father where he was um, educated, it was in Turkey. So I said, you know, in Turkey, the programs in history are different. And the writing of history, it is related to each country. So in Turkey, you can't teach that the genocide happens that way. And I said, don't be afraid. I won't think you are like an extremist asking that kind of question. It was three years after the attacks of 2015. She was absolutely scared. That I could think she's an extremist and I would report her to the headmaster.
0: After this, the teacher who who was murdered last week, there's been a lot saying about teachers being... The, the ones to transmit laïcité and secularism, are you
2: the only ones to do that? Uh, I think the teachers transmit the laïcité the way it was written in the law. That's to say there is an absolute freedom of consciousness. This is the law of 1905. But the way it is spread in the media is by politicians, in the discourses, everything. It's more like the absolute neutrality of citizens. Like no religion allowed at all. No religion allowed at all. And it's the complete opposite of the uh, la- laicity law. So as teachers, we are a little bit between. In between, we have these two injunctions. We, we know what we have to teach. But what the media says, what the parents ask sometimes, what politicians ask, is not at all what we all ask from our institution.
0: After the the murder last week, I feel like everybody's have something to say about it. Politicians, activists, you know, everybody has their say. (laughs) Um, But what's come out is this sort of putting teachers up on a pedestal it makes me wonder, as a teacher, how do you feel about that, in the sense that you're kind of being asked to transmit all the values of France to these students?
2: Yes, I, I always say I think we are the alpha and omega of French society and its problems. So that's to say, if there is a problem with dealing with migrants, we should in schools do that. If there is a problem dealing with um, Islam, we should in schools do this.
0: Not everybody agrees with you, of course.
2: Yes, yeah, but the thing is that I feel like if something happens regarding the, the values of France, and I don't, really don't know what values mean.
0: Les valeurs de la République, right? It's a kind of a lofty term.
2: Yeah, exactly. And it's, it became like a coined phrase. Les valeurs de la République, you don't know what it means, but we have to teach it, okay? And that's to say I think the politician uses the school as a tool to um, show that they are dealing with some problems, but we don't have the means to do that. So Sarah, not enough means. uh, That
1: echoes what Rashid Zerouki was saying earlier in the program.
0: Yeah, and it's a lot to ask of teachers. They're already stretched quite thin. The government has called a grenelle, or consultation on education, in the next few months, in particular to consider wage increases and such things. But now, of course, it includes security. Maybe all this might change a bit how teachers are valued. We'll have to see. (laughs) Back in history now to the Middle Ages, to November 1st, 1347. That's when the plague arrived in the southern French port of Marseille.
1: Mm, the plague, yeah, this April Francis Health chief, uh, Jérôme Salomon, compared the current COVID pandemic to mm-hmm. that 1347
0: plague pandemic. Which is a pretty serious comparison because Marseille, of course, was the first point of entry for the Black Death into Europe. It then spread from there. It killed, by some estimates, up to 45 million people or half of Europe's population in just five years.
1: It just puts everything into perspective. Mm -hmm. Where did this plague come from, Sarah?
0: While plague had been sweeping through East Asia for a while, Europe had been spared until that fateful day, November 1st, when a ship docked in Marseille from Caffa, that's a Genoese colony in Crimea. Today, the city is called Fidocia. The city was under siege by the Mongols, who controlled Crimea at the time, and the Mongol army was dying from plague. So as they were besieging the city, they started throwing infected corpses over the city walls. Biological warfare. It's pretty gross, yeah. So of course, some of the residents managed to escape on ships, but of course, bringing the plague with them, spreading the disease wherever they docked. And one of these ships docked in Marseille in November of 1347. And it spread throughout France and Europe, because at the time, the instinct was to flee the plague, so people brought it with them wherever they went
1: at that time, there was no lockdown, right?
0: No, no, the pandemic ended in 1352. And the first quarantine was put in place in 1377. So 20 plus years later, this was in Ragusa. Today, that's Dubrovnik in Croatia. So those arriving from an infected place had to spend a month on an island for disinfection. Venice started doing the same, but they put in place a 40 day period of waiting.
1: 40 days, hence the term quarantaine from the, the number 40.
0: Yeah, all of the Mediterranean ports, including Marseille, put in place Quarantines of varying lengths by 1383. Plague pandemics recurred regularly, a series of major ones in the 18th century. Marseille is known perhaps more for its plague of 1720 because it was the last in the West. At the time, the Europeans thought they'd gotten rid of this medieval disease. It seems to have gradually disappeared from Europe, though, though it lingered in the Middle East.
1: So Sarah, the coronavirus is spreading. A good deal faster than the plague we've just been talking about.
0: Faster, though maybe not quite as deadly. But still, the numbers are worrying. Here in France, we've had 50,000 new cases a day, though the medical establishment warns it could be more like 100,000. Hospitals in Paris, in the Paris region, are saturated, and also in the east of France. Um, Though we are now entering a phase of increased lockdown, hopefully to get those numbers down.
1: But last week, it wasn't so alarmist and since it's the school holiday period, I, like many Parisians, tried to escape the curfews and everything by heading off to a corner of southwest France called the Pyrenees Orientales, which has been a lot less affected by the virus than the Paris region. So I went some 860 kilometers south of Paris to a small town called Syrie. It's close to the Spanish border.
0: No, so that's a region called French Catalonia, right? It belonged to Spain until 1659. A lot of people speak Catalan.
1: They do. And so the street signs are all in both French and Catalan. Uh, the streets are called Carrer, for example. It's a very attractive uh, small town, cobbled streets set in the foothills of the mountains, notably uh, Mount Canigou, which everyone uh, loves and is very proud of. So it has a, a strong local culture and identity. It had been relatively protected from the virus. There were very few deaths during the first wave. So people there perhaps feeling a little bit immune to this virus. Mm. But then last Friday night at midnight, the Pyrenees Oriental Departement became one of the 54 to go into red alert with a 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. curfew. And so all the bars and cafes are closed if they don't serve food. I went out to talk to people on that very last evening before life as they know it, was put on hold for six weeks and I found there was a lot of incomprehension. So it's a lovely balmy evening uh, here in the center of Cefe. There are dozens of people sitting outside here under a canopy of plane trees on the terrace here at this bar. They're having a drink or two, ordering them thick and fast. They're clearly enjoying themselves, making the most of this last chance to come together at this really popular bar. It's called Licade. Where have? You People have come to enjoy a last evening together before we close. It's crazy, laughs the waiter Nicolas Barzac as he places another big order at the bar. We're in a little village here. There isn't much COVID, so I don't see the need to close, he says. The level's gone up a bit, but I'm not sure that in a village like Cire, it's that much of a problem.
2: I hate coronavirus, Voilà. à cause
1: stay open. It's a shame to close, you think? Few people would disagree with the bar owner Elodie Alcouf. She opened Les Arcades four years ago with her husband. They'll get financial help from the government during the six-week closure, so it's not as if they're going to go under but she can't wait to open up again.
2: We'll
1: get over it. We'll come back even stronger, she says. You've got to keep the faith. This bar is closing this evening because of COVID. Do you understand why? No.
0: i don't understand
1: (laughs) on the terrace sandrine is huddled up around a table with five of her friends there isn't much physical distancing going on here rather than paying bars and restaurants to close that's going to cost the country a fortune in unemployment benefits she says it would be better to confine people at risk and then pay them to stay at home she argues let the others continue to keep our society going and the young people to carry on living their lives. So where are you going to gather tomorrow evening or at weekends? Chez nous, <laughs> on va creuser des tunnels. You're going to dig tunnels and have drinks at home. But only six people. Are you going to respect the only six people rule? No, Non, Not non, pas sûr qu'on respecte. Il peut qu'on soit seven, ou eight, ou nine. So it's just not possible that you can only be six, you might be seven or eight. Non,
2: non, en fait, Are going to respect a the curfew? Non, il a d- ah, d- so you have no choice,
1: they'll just fine you. Yeah, 135 euros. Yeah, it's a
2: lot of money, huh? Oui, oui,
1: c'est ça. <laughs> oui, il est gentil, il est gentil, il est fermé aussi. Il est fermé, mais sont tous
0: fermés.
1: The next morning, at the bustling Saturday market, everyone is talking about the curfew and the closed cafes and bars. People seem at a loss as to where to go and chat, it's as if they've lost their vortex. On one of the main cobbled streets, I find Alphonse selling locally grown chestnuts and walnuts which he cracks open to show their pedigree. He's a sprightly, small, middle aged man with a shaven head and an engaging smile. I can see it because, like many, his mask is under his chin. Not because he refuses to respect the rules, but he just loves to communicate. But today, there are far fewer people to chat to. 10 On the market at around 10 there are usually loads of people he says but today there's hardly anyone. I think people are afraid to come out. That's why it's a bit sad and quiet. He's ambivalent about the curfew. Personnellement je connais personne non non non. Personally, I don't know anyone who's got the virus, so I don't think there's much justification for closing the cafés. Maybe if it was in summer, when it gets really busy, but now it shouldn't be a problem to keep your distance from people. So, are people keeping their distance, I ask him? Um, not really, he says with a shrug. Look at me, with my mask. I'm not really respecting the rules, am I? The cafes may be closed but people adapt quickly here and a few stalls further down, Philippe is doing a roaring trade with his portable coffee machine. People are queuing up for un petit noir, an espresso, and a chat. This woman is philosophical and determined not to be ground down by the restrictions. (laughs) They're annoying the hell out of me, says another woman, as she pays for a coffee and the opportunity to sound off. They're killing off the small shopkeepers. You know what? They shouldn't have let people go off on holiday during the summer. Now look at the state we're in. I walk past stalls selling 70s music, goat's cheese soap, flowers, fresh herbs. The market is awash with colour and the sky a clear azure blue. Les Arcades bar is now closed as promised, but the owners left the tables and chairs out on the terrace and people are sitting down with their takeaway coffees to pass the time. A few embrace one another as they meet, keeping the tradition of la bise. At one table, Fabricio, a local librarian, is serving coffee from a thermos flask to a group of his friends. I realized loads of people would find themselves alone this morning, he says, and it's important that they're not. So I just made a thermos of coffee for people to share. I'll do it for the next six weeks to create a link between people. I'm encouraging everyone to bring their own thermos, though, because one for six people, it's a bit tight. The virus is augmenting every day. The virus is spreading. Yes. Juliana Melo, a local district nurse originally from Portugal, has first-hand experience of the virus.
2: Every day is,
1: is uh, you have an augmentation, every day. Every day it's because going up. Have... And what kind of people are you seeing who have the every virus? People, not people. just old people? No, 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 not just old people. <laughs> no. Do you think that people take COVID seriously here yes, in Syri? Yes, yes. Maybe now you're going to put your
2: mask because you are scared.
1: Because they're scared. Her friend, Melina Kellner, runs a tea shop around the corner. And she reckons that people will fall into line in the end.
2: The Frais, français des or plus ou moins l'autorité. The French
1: have a problem with authority, she says. They're not exactly docile. They do as they want. But in the end, when they get ill, they get scared and then they get tested. We like to complain, but the government is helping us. We've got good health care here and it's cheap. We have to remember that, especially with what's happening at the moment.
0: So, since then, of course, the COVID numbers are going through the roof, and the whole country is now facing some sort of lockdown for the next few weeks.
1: Yeah, the ambiance in Serre might just be a bit different this weekend.
0: And that's it for Spotlight on France. We'd love to hear from you. If you have questions, suggestions of subjects, spotlight.france at rfi.fr and you can find us on Instagram. It's Spotlight on France. And this episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. You can
1: find this one and previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever
0: you get your podcasts. We'll be back again in two weeks on Thursday, November the 12th. Allison, see you then. See you, Sarah. Bye-bye.